0: My guest today is so knowledgeable about state legislatures, he's probably forgotten more than I'll ever know about the first branch of government. Pev Squire is a professor at the Truman School of Government at the University of Missouri. He's had a distinguished career researching legislatures going all the way back to their colonial beginnings with the Virginia House of Burgesses in 1619. He's authored and co-authored multiple books on legislatures, including the definitive history of American legislatures titled the evolution of American legislatures, a must read for anybody who considers themselves a serious scholar of legislatures. With most legislative sessions starting in January and more than 1500 newly elected legislators joining the ranks, it's a good time to dive into the the complex history of our enduring institution, the state legislature. Dr. Pat
1: Squire, it is really an honor for me to have you on this podcast that we do at NCSL. The word all comes to mind, I have, of your knowledge of legislatures and, uh, and and wish that I had just a fraction of what you know about legislatures. And I, I mean that very sincerely. You just have such an impressive appreciation and knowledge of legislatures, and that's what we're here to talk about. So, Pev, um, welcome
2: to the show. Well, I'm happy to be here, and, and I hope I can live up to all that. I have no doubt that you will. I'd like to get a little more
1: detail of your history with legislatures. And and the question is, why did you decide to start looking at legislatures as as a political scientist?
2: Talk about the work you've done in that field. Well, you know, I've been doing this now for many, many decades. I go back to when I started graduate school. Legislatures were always of interest. I had enjoyed taking a course on Congress back when I was an undergraduate. And so it wasn't a surprise that I continued to sort of explore ideas with legislatures. I, I became intrigued with state legislatures while I was in graduate school, and I followed at that point. I was at the University of California, Berkeley, so I was following California politics closely. It occurred to me that sort of the way the California Assembly functioned had some things in similarity with Congress, but also some differences. And so that's what I ended up uh, exploring in my dissertation and, and coming up with some ideas about how state legislatures were like in some instances Congress and different in other instances and, and why that those differences were important. And so I pursued that for a long time, mostly looking at contemporary legislatures. Probably about 15, 20 years ago now, I, I had sort of thought myself uh, being Sort of well versed in state legislatures from the 1960s on. And I was curious, you know, what had happened before that not to lead up to, to the 1960s. And so I just kept pushing back farther and farther. Ultimately arrived back in 1619 and uh, have been sort of mining a lot of that since. So there are, you know, remarkable continuities from 1619 to the present. Lots of things that have changed, but uh, probably more things that we have in common with those early institutions than, than differences. And, and wound up publishing uh, one of a
1: number of books you've done about legislatures, which was The Evolution of State Legislatures. Was that
2: the formal title? The Evolution of American Legislatures, uh, looking at uh, both those colonial assemblies uh, that, that were the predecessors and uh, and, and then not just state legislatures, but also the, sort of the territorial bodies that preceded most state legislatures.
1: And, and let me just say, I have read that book uh, uh, cover to cover and, and sort of reread it um, as well, because I, I love it. I love the stories that are in there about legislatures and exactly what you talked about, the discovery of like, man, there's a lot more in common with these uh, colonial outfits and beyond the territorial than one might expect. What, what other uh, books have you done on legislatures? You've written multiple books on legislatures.
2: Well, uh, Gary Moncrief, who many people in state legislatures will know, uh, he and I have done a couple of books on uh, state legislatures today, which is in a third edition, and then a, a book called Why States Matter, which should be obvious to everybody who listens to this, but it's not obvious to uh, the rest of the world sometimes. So I, I, I've done works comparing Congress and state legislatures in 101 chambers. I looked at the colonial assemblies and the rise of the representative and, uh, and then more recently a book on the right of instruction, which is something that was important in the 18th and 19th century and has been forgotten since, but which is still embedded in a number of state constitutions and operated uh, to a far greater degree in the 19th century than political scientists and historians have sort of given credit. So that's what I've done in the past and now I'm working on a historical analysis of ballot measures on state legislatures.
1: Let's go into some of this history, uh, because I, I find it really fascinating. I think sometimes legislators, they we have over 1,500 new legislators after this election, not uncommon uh, turnover, especially following a redistricting cycle. And they walk in the door and they
2: don't really appreciate that this is an institution that has a history. It, it is interesting legislators probably don't fully appreciate that they are part of this um, continuing institution that there were lots of decisions made in the past that gave them the institution in place today and and the fact that they'll make decisions while they're in the legislature that will have implications for people that follow them and so there are lots of continuities and and occasionally innovations and, and significant changes but I, I think if you picked up some of the legislators from the uh, 18th century and and, and plop them down in, in contemporary American legislatures, that they'd probably be able to operate a lot better than people uh, might expect.
1: Why is that? What, what, what's the commonality that would, would they would find familiar? The clothing, the technology's all changed,
2: but what's what's the common thread? Uh, you know the rules, um, the basic behavioral rules governing how you comport yourself in the legislature have long histories can go back and look at the, even the rules in the 1600s, which were relatively few in number, but they would be familiar in, in terms of how you behave, that you address the, the, the speaker. In most cases, you had to take your hat off. You know, you don't carry weapons onto the floor. You know, a lot of those things were in place. And, and then even during the colonial era, you started getting more complexity with, with rules that could be used to uh, cut off debate, uh, to invoke a form of cloture. How many readings bills had to have has a long history. A lot of that is fairly constant over time, gets tinkered with a little bit to try to make things more efficient. But for the most part, even though we have these very elaborate rules now, they've just been sort of accreted over time. You can think of them as sort of geological strata that slowly builds up over time, and you can, you can find the early roots of these rules going back into the 18th uh, and even the 17th century.
1: What about other features like committee systems or leadership or anything else that, you know, is, is really has those deep, deep ties to the historic nature of legislatures?
2: Yeah, we we had committees, um, standing committees in colonial assemblies uh, in Virginia in, in the middle of the uh, the 1600s. You find ad hoc committees, even the very first day of the very first Virginia assembly in 1619. But they had standing committees within a few decades. Not every colonial assembly did, but many of the uh, others did. Uh, Pennsylvania had a very elaborate system. Uh, South Carolina used them as well. They became important. Bills got referred to them. They were gatekeepers in the same way that they uh, became uh, in uh, modern legislatures. They even were allowed to hold hearings outside the institution and to gather information and to collect papers. So you know, all of that would be familiar. It's important to point out that state legislatures um, actually had committee systems before Congress did. Congress sort of lagged behind uh, the states on that. And, and in fact, many of the developments in, in Congress as it was created under the Constitution were actually built on the original 13 state legislatures to a far greater degree than most people realize.
1: I mean that's another thing that is very clear in your evolution of legislatures, American legislatures book, is that the U.S. Congress was really the, the child of the state assemblies.
2: Um, it, it was, and, and this is runs sort of counter to the way most historians have, uh, have viewed it, and, and most historians would say James Madison and George Mason were skeptical of state legislatures, which they were, and, and therefore didn't look to them as, as models uh, when they sort of developed the, the, the U.S. Congress that we know. Uh, but in fact, they, they did. They, they, they were not the only uh, former state legislators uh, serving in the Constitutional Convention. And so the, the, the entire sort of basic structure of the U.S. Congress uh, was modeled on the existing state legislatures. You know, almost all of them were bicameral, and the U.S. Congress was bicameral. They used the most common names for the two chambers. They allowed the lower chamber to begin revenue bills, and that was based on the state legislatures. They, they took the veto power, basically word for word, from, from Massachusetts. And when you look at leadership, we had speakers in the Colonial Assemblies. We had speakers in the uh, original state legislatures. You get a speaker in the U.S. House of Representatives. And, and so there are far more continuities than discontinuities when you look at how that Congress was originally created. And even when you look at the rules in the first U.S. House, um, uh, you can see where they were uh, taken from uh, the rules being used in a number of the states at that time.
1: Man, I'm just geeking out on this stuff, Pev. I really do love it. Of course, I'm a a big fan and, and champion of legislature, so no one should be surprised by that. Are there eras? Do you think of, you know, you chunk legislative evolution into distinct eras and what I'm going to get to is like, okay, where does that get us today?
2: Yeah, it's an interesting question. and something I've been playing around with and, uh, in just the last couple of, uh, of years. Certainly when we talk about the, the sort of national period from independence on, uh, you have this founding period, which you get the original uh, 13 state legislatures. They were mostly just continuities with, the, with their colonial predecessors, with some innovations uh, layered on. Uh, and you bring in the U.S. Congress as, as part of that. And and you can sort of see that era really extending up until uh, just about 1860. You get new states brought in. The new states sort of model themselves on the existing state legislatures at that point. And then following the Civil War and its aftermath, you, you get a, a change in American society. You get urbanization. You get uh, economic development, the telegraph, the railroad. Uh, everything's dramatically different in the last part of the, of the 19th century. And, and and you see that in state legislatures. They change. They get more elaborate rules. They add on lots and lots of committees, even more committees than most state legislatures have. Today, they, they start instituting annual salaries rather than just per diems. People start serving for longer than they had uh, before. And then you get into the 20th century, which is sort of the professionalizing period Um, I had used to think that it was sort of instituted with Jesse Unruh and the California Assembly in the 1960s. It actually precedes that. You can find uh, pressure on state legislatures uh, to a terrific degree at the beginning of the 20th century. and They had to change to uh, to respond to that. Really, from the 1980s on, we've been in this post-professionalizing period where you have uh, some legislatures that continue to, sort of advance in terms of salaries and others that uh, that don't. And so there's a gap between a lot of state legislatures and Congress in terms of resources available to them now in a way that had uh, tried to close in the 60s and 70s and, and uh, they haven't uh, really made much difference uh, in, in recent decades. And so we may be on the cusp now of a, of a series of Uh, of new changes, because again, so much has been put down onto the states in terms of decision making uh, that uh, state legislatures are again having to respond. And and the question becomes whether they will be given the resources they need to make the decisions that are asked of them, or uh, if they will have to struggle on that score.
1: You know, I was sort of under the impression there was this period of sort of corporate dominance of legislatures, you know, that that, are industrial, you know, whether it was the the timber industry in one part of the world and the mining industry in a different set of states that was sort of the early part of the 20th century. And then you get the redistricting opinions which sort of uh, from the U.S. Supreme Court mandating one person, one vote, Baker be Carr, rooms v. sims. So those decisions come out in the early 60s and that that's kind of the marking point. I mean, is that still accurate? And then you get this burst of modernization, new constitutions in like the 70s and, and like you said, pay, staff resources go from next to nothing to very substantial in many states. How, how does that, is, you know, kind of fill in the gaps and, and, and let me know if that's a, a fair description of the 20th and the 21st centuries of legislature? It, it
2: works in part. Uh, there are a few things that uh, probably, um, there were more pressures early on in the 20th century coming out of the 19th century when a lot of state legislatures were thought to be uh, highly corrupt uh, and under the thumb of particular industries or corporations, depending on, on the state. So, you know, Anaconda and Montana and Southern Pacific and California, and oil interest in, in Pennsylvania. That's an important sort of development that, that people were unhappy with the status of their state legislatures, with the capacity of their state legislatures, even by the beginning of the 20th century. And it took legislature some time to respond to that. But you begin to see really around the 1940s, more states moving to annual sessions from biennial sessions. Uh, That picks up in the 1960s. Uh, You begin to see some increases in in salaries, some increase in staffing. All of that gets accelerated in the 1960s with the, the professionalization movement, Jesse Enra out of California. And, and the idea was to, to give legislatures more time and more resources and better prepared legislators to, to meet the demands that were uh, being made of them. And, and, and that was a significant uh, development. And, and in terms of meaning themselves from reliance on corporations, the idea if you had your own staff, you had institutional staff, committee staff, personal staff, you had the information that you needed to make decisions without having to rely on the executive branch or, or interest groups to provide you that information. And, and so you get lots of wonderful comments from legislators in the 1970s saying, you know, for the first time, uh, you know, my staff tells me something different, so I don't have to simply take uh, the word of, of the governor's person or, or a lobbyist uh, uh, on a particular piece of, 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 of legislation. That seems to beg the question.
1: Are we in the new era? Are we still just somewhere along that continuum? And maybe it just really has plateaued. I mean, NCSL tracks the size of legislative staff. We actually just completed our census of legislative staff. We do it roughly every four or five years. And it's at 30,000. I mean, it's just held roughly. That's across all 50 states. Sounds like a big number, but, you know, when you break it down, it's it's been very stable in that uh, 25,000. It gets a little complicated because we break it out by full-time, year-round professional staff versus the session-only staff. So I'm just thinking staff resources is one element of that. Physical resources, capital space is another element of that. And, and these are things that have been very, you know, not changing in, in, in certainly in recent years. Term limits is, comes along in the 90s. Uh,
2: maybe that marks a change. But where are we today? Well, you know, the, the change really happens right around 1980. And it's the same time that Ronald Reagan gets swept into the White House. And and it wasn't Reagan who made the change, but the, the sort of the motivation for electing a smaller government uh was sort of the big ideas there. So we have seen a plateau across the fifty states since the nineteen eighties. Staff is probably the the clearest example of that, although you can Look at salaries that have been uh, lagging in, in lots of state legislatures going back into for decades, two decades, three decades, you know, all the way back to 1889 for New Hampshire. Uh, you know, they just haven't uh, kept salaries up uh, with inflation. We are at a period where we have seen, particularly at the at the, the most advanced legislatures in terms of staff resources, uh, they've leveled off or even declined a little bit in California and New York. You've seen a little bit of growth at the bottom end, which is probably good because those are the legislators who have the fewest resources available to them. And so more resources will help them. But the concern you might have is, of course, where you don't have your independent staff resources, you rely on on external sources of information. And those external sources of information will always have their own agendas that they want to push, which may or may not be the same uh, set of priorities that the, the lawmakers themselves might have. So it's a concern that we have leveled off for such a long period of time. Uh, it also comes as, you know, we noted that more is being asked of them. Lots of decisions are being made at the state level, lots of very complicated policies that have to be worked out. Um, and so sort of the lack of information is, is one of the things that can cause problems for the legislature in terms of, of just simply making policy mistakes or not being able to make policies as quickly or as correctly as they might like.
1: My favorite um, example of that is, is some of the digital asset stuff, cryptocurrency. Very complex issue, still, uh, no, you know, still evolving to figure out, like, you know, should states accept uh, cryptocurrency for tax payments or for other kinds of payments to the state, and and, um, and it, it put me in the mind of, of those Virginians you were talking about earlier, all of whom were legislators, you know, Jefferson, Madison. Uh, Monroe and uh, Washington, and um, even Daniel Boone was,
2: a, was in the Virginia legislature. I think legislatures today are being asked to answer a lot of very difficult questions. And, you know, cryptocurrency is one thing and internet privacy bills or, you know, you know, how do you deal with social media um, and, and just sort of the, the, the routine questions today, education uh, you know, continues to, to be difficult. Tax systems are always difficult. Um, so, you know, we can't say that the legislators in the past had it easier. Uh, they actually had tough things they had to decide and, and limited time and information. And, and today, though, they're, we're just being swamped more and more. And, and in fact, because of the difficulties that Congress has had in making decisions, Lots of decisions have been left to the legislatures to, to fill in some of those gaps where Congress can't seem to, uh, uh, to come up with policies. So there are lots of demands on legislators today. Uh, and, you know, government is complex. The legislative process itself is complex. Um, so for new members who are just coming into the institution, it, it's pretty daunting. They have, they have to learn a lot about policies. Uh, and lots of policies. Uh, and they have to understand the sort of Byzantine complexity of parliamentary procedures, as well as how do you operate in an institution where uh, you alone don't get to make decisions, but you have to try to persuade some number, and again, figuring out what that number is isn't always easy, uh, of your colleagues to to agree with you. And, and so it, it takes a lot of time and skill and effort to succeed in a legislature. And from outside the legislature sometimes that's not always appreciated that reminds me of this something that i witnessed one time i was
1: doing a like an inteso consulting thing in a in an, in an african legislature in this case and and there was a reception that evening much like the receptions you would have here where there were you know interest groups and all the members were mingling and and i was sort of standing on a balcony and and i looked down and, and it, of course they were speaking um in this case arabic and they were Many of them were wearing sort of uh, the garb of of the nations. It looked very unfamiliar and sounded very unfamiliar, um, but by the same token, seemed extremely familiar. I was looking at this scene, thinking like, "This is exactly like every reception I've seen at every state capital I've been in before." And and I was thinking about Jefferson, Daniel Boone, those, and uh, he was a short-term legislator. I like to bring him up, Um, and uh, Madison and these folks because that part hasn't changed, right? This, this persuasion element, that human side of it, has that evolved a whole lot, you think?
2: Not a lot, no. Uh, they, they still have to grapple with the same basic questions about what they think their responsibility is in the job. Do they simply do whatever they think their constituents and uh, want them to do? Or do they uh, bring in their own expertise and their own uh, sense of right and wrong and Go from that. And and you can find, you know, that was always sort of attributed to Burke uh, in in the English um, uh, Parliament. uh, But actually, you can find the exact quandary uh, in the diaries of colonial assembly members in in places like Virginia. Um, So, you know, every legislator has to decide exactly what's the basis of his or her decision making going to be. And then they also have to learn that it's not just their own view, but a complex world of, of lots of other colleagues and uh, parties and, and constituents and interests uh, that uh, all sort of uh, play to them. And, and so you're constantly juggling things. Uh, and it's a demanding job. And again, I from outside the institution, I, I think most people don't appreciate the difficulty of, of having to make some of these decisions sometimes. You know, the media will report on, on sort of the superficial... Uh, aspects of, of the legislative process and always I mean this is one of the things you can find over time always complaining that nothing gets done early in the session and everything's left till the end uh, you know that's universal that has been constant over time it's not uh, not a new thing and, and it's because it's hard to reach decisions particularly on complicated and controversial issues so you put them off to the end because there are lots of things that have to fall in place before you can can arrive at a a consensus on these things. So the legislative process is pretty constant uh, across the the legislatures and and over time. The the rhythm of it is pretty much the same. New legislators coming in or people just moving into leadership need to sort of reflect on what were the lessons that uh, they learned or what were relayed to them by their senior colleagues when they first arrived, Uh, because there are lots of valuable information uh, contained in those experiences.
1: Well, the first thing they would notice, of course, would be the tremendous diversity difference between, uh, I see, colonial legislatures, legislatures of the 19th century and even the 20th century uh, were very non-diverse. You know, they were almost all white males uh, who had kind of the same beard and uh, the same scowl in a way. And those, I think of those old class photos you see in the capitals in the Midwest. Of, they all had the same suit on. And, of course, now they would come and they would see, you know, uh, women now at 32% of all legislators, still not uh, anywhere close to proportionate, and, and the number of, of people of color increasing. But what, what the reason I, I put that on the table is that with this whole notion of listening to other viewpoints, that diversity of viewpoints is now heavily informed by a much more
2: representative uh, body of people than certainly any point in history. Yeah, no, we, we do have greater diversity on almost every dimension you can, can think of um, in the current uh, legislatures, the new ones coming in. Um, and that diversity is important, not simply because of, you know, a, a notion of, of diversity is, is good, but the fact is uh, legislatures run on information. You get information from a wider range of people when you have a more diverse legislative uh, membership. Uh, and so those people will bring in different sets of experiences, different viewpoints on how things can get solved uh, and what's a problem, what's not a problem. And, and that information is valuable to anybody who's trying to make decisions because none of us has uh, you know the complete right answer on any policy. And so I, I think, again, one of the lessons we've learned in, in recent American history is the media will focus on the high uh conflict measures, but there are a lot of things that get through legislatures that are done on a more bipartisan basis, lower profile issues, sometimes important ones, sometimes less important, but where you do find common ground in places that you might not expect it. And so here in Missouri, where it's, uh, you know, uh, overwhelmingly uh, Republicans in both chambers, uh, they still managed to to move some um, criminal justice measures through in the last session. Uh, working with Republicans and Democrats. It didn't get a lot of attention, uh, but it was a real success. That was the product and part of people coming from very different backgrounds and very different sets of experiences. Actually sitting down occasionally and talking with one another and figuring out where they might actually be able to meet. And, and, and that's the genius of the legislative process on the on the occasions when it works.
1: We we sort of have done some research around how many bills pass on final passage with uh, a bipartisan vote, which is just one vote from the other party. And we're, we're, we're pegging it somewhere around 85 you percent, know, much higher than most people would assume, and you know, who are on the outside of the process are only looking at Washington. And so, Let me ask you this. What do you think are the big challenges and stresses on the institution right now? Where does it
2: need to go? It's an interesting question uh, because we are obviously in a, a, a period of, of great stress in American politics and Uh, you know, we toss around the word polarization, but it's real. Uh, There are vast gaps between many Republicans and Democrats and many legislatures, and legislatures that are overwhelmingly dominated by by one party, and and usually with the so-called trifecta with the governor, so that they're in a position to really push policies in a way that that Congress certainly is is incapable of doing it. My big concern probably is where you have vast majorities that they may rush to make decisions uh, without sort of laying the the proper legislative process following it, not doing enough work to really develop those ideas so that their goals are actually attained, uh, rather than just making political statements, actually making successful policies is much more difficult. And, and, and I think probably and you've heard me say this before, but I, for me, the critical thing that has to happen in American legislatures is that you have to allow the minority party to have some voice. Obviously, the majority will almost always be able to work its will, but you lose valuable information when you don't allow the minority to at least express their interests or offer their information. And it also stifles politics in a way that's probably unhealthy. So, you know, we, we complain a lot about how Congress works, but if you look at how the House of Representatives treats its minority party members, it, it's generally uh, much more charitable to them than many state legislative chambers are uh, to their minority parties. And and it's it goes back to this notion that just to take it all the way back to um, 16, 19 again, uh, they didn't originally talk about votes, they, they talked about voice. Uh, and, and so you, you were given your voice to express your, your preferences. And, and so I think legislative bodies that, that uh, try to limit the voice of all its members, particularly those of the minority party, uh, probably are doing a disservice to themselves. And even the majority is probably hampered because it doesn't get all the information it has or needs doesn't have all the legitimacy that it might need uh, in making decisions.
1: That's a really perceptive thing to say, and I would agree with you completely. I might spend a lot of time with legislative leaders, and you know, without saying you know who's good and who's bad, I, I've always had the sense that the, the best ones are the ones who kind of understood this principle that you can let the let the minority party have it say, talk on the floor, be respectful, and you take the vote. You know, you outvote them at the end of the day, but there's this, there's reason for doing that. You, you've you kind of introduced a different one, which is to have that expression in. It may not necessarily change the vote that moment, but it might change some votes at another point on a different bill. It just is a matter of civility and respect.
2: No, we we, we run that risk. You know, legislatures are, are um, fragile institutions. One of the things that we probably need to a greater degree than we've had over the last decade or two is is some sense of institutional loyalty and some appreciation for doing what you need to do, make sure the institution works and continues to work in the future. So adherence to the rules, you adopt the rules in the beginning of the session, try to stick to them. When you start changing rules to produce the outcome that you want, that leaves a bad taste in everybody's mouth and, and makes them s- uh, more suspicious of the, the motivations of, of legislators. and. And, and again, the majority in almost every institution is probably going to be able to do what it wants most of the time. And on those occasions where it can't do what it wants, they may need to reflect on the fact that maybe they're being prevented from doing something they, they probably shouldn't do.
1: Legislatures are fragile institutions.
2: We often like to say they're
1: strong institutions, right? And, and actually, this is one of these, a paradox that they, both of these can exist, I think, because I, I, I take your, your meaning with that that um, we better not take them for granted. I think the Icelandic people, are you familiar with this, claim to have the first legislature in the, the hills of, of Iceland and Thingvellir uh, in like 970 or 871 or something. like that. I don't know if that's entirely accurate or not, but they claim it. And so I, I, we've joked before that these are ninth century institutions racing into the 10th century. Uh, because they, But they have been around a long
2: time, and they do change very slowly. Legislatures are composed of people who are ambitious uh, and have agendas can be very forceful people. They bring great passion to their their policy preferences. Uh, and those passions can boil over. We, we you know have experiences in, in uh, American history, not just of fisticuffs on the floor but even pistol being brought out and somebody shot and killed in. The notion of civility is is really quite important and, and you want to be able to maintain, uh, decorum uh, so that everybody feels like they are free to participate and free to express their preferences and their constituents' preferences and to raise the points they uh, they want to make. And, and that has to be done in such a way that uh, uh, everybody can be comfortable with it. And, and, and that's not always an easy thing to do, but that's all on leadership to make sure that uh, the rules that are undoubtedly in place in each of the legislatures are, in fact, followed on. And there are reasons why you have those rules, because uh, if you don't have them, uh, you can have some very unfortunate outcomes. We're, we're sitting
1: here as legislatures are about to go into legislative sessions following the midterm elections. We're talking about some of the major issues that they're going to be uh, dealing with. Workforce issues is underlies everything. It's a budget issue. It's an education issue. It's a public safety issue. Um, you know, the American economy is in a truly unprecedented place incredibly low unemployment, inflation and money supply and all of this. And then you got affordable housing issues, a behavioral health crisis that seems to be um, somewhat unprecedented. So my question is, are legislatures up to the task when they convene in January of, of dealing and bringing about good policies? Uh, do, the, do they have the mechanisms, the systems, the institutional uh, norms to, uh, to, to solve
2: some of these vexing problems? It, it will be difficult. It will be a challenge for even the, uh, the best endowed legislatures to, to be able to do these things. These are complex issues. They have lots of dimensions to them. There are no simple or easy answers out there. And it will take a lot of work on the part of, of committees uh, in each of these chambers to try to, to develop ideas. There, there may be some innovative ideas that emerge from, from different places uh, across the country, Uh, And of course, uh, the value of something like NCSL, where you can sort of gain access to some ideas that are being generated elsewhere, you know, some keep tabs of the kinds of bills being introduced on some of these complex uh, pieces of legislation. It's tough to do. They probably need more support from my perspective. I'm a big proponent of uh, legislative staff resources at the institutional level, committee level. Uh, I think personal staff is uh, is important as well uh, and and they may find that in some cases they, they probably need more time uh, to work through these things some legislatures operate under very restrictive uh, calendars again those are things that have changed in the past and, and those are the kinds of things that may need to change again in the future I
1: really uh, genuinely authentically sincerely love this conversation so grateful for your time and uh, and 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 we are absolutely going to do a second uh, part of this because, uh, like I said, I've got a whole bundle of other questions about the size of legislative districts and the the days spent in session. So, thank you so much for being on the uh, Inside Story, Legislatures.
2: Well, I look forward to uh, to the second part.
0: I've been talking with Pev Squire, professor at the Truman School of Government at the University of Missouri. And distinguished for his research into the workings of state legislatures throughout American history.
2: Thanks for listening to our podcast. We encourage you to review and rate NCSL Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or Spotify. We also encourage you to check out our other podcasts, Our American States, and the special series, Building Democracy.